0: So our reading is taken from Hosea chapter seven. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely, the thief breaks in and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil Now their deeds surround them, they are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smoulders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, Silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to the congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds, for grain and wine they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward, They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. They shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we do pray tonight that as David has prepared to Explain your word to us that you will help him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we also pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will help each one of us to understand your word and to apply it to our lives and the situations in which we find ourselves. So we pray now that you, be, you would be with us and bless us. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: It's in these uh, chapters 6 and 7 that Hosea is using metaphors and word-placed. Uh, he's been using them to describe what Israel's unfaithfulness looks like. There are other places where he uses technique, this technique, but certainly in these two chapters there is a, a real concentration of them. He seems to use them a lot in this particular area of what he writes in order to emphasize the point of Israel's unfaithfulness and what it looks like. Sometimes we can become blind, can't we, to seeing what God sees. And so something like this, in illustrating the problem, can help clarify what the problem is. Remember how the prophet Nathan went to King David? And told a lovely little story about a guy who had a sheep, a lamb that was clear, that was dear to his heart and everything. And you find in one Samuel chapter 2 Samuel chapter twelve, just a little story David or Nathan used. And yet God used that to strike the conscience of David and bring him to his senses to see, I have sinned against God. Well that's what Hosea has been aiming to do here. This is the heart of God, you see, that his people would turn back. So here in this letter, if it's a letter, I don't know, a book at least, here we have this concentration of six metaphors. So far we've looked at three of them. In chapter 6, verse 4, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. And then uh, chapter 6, verse 7, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me then in chapter 7 verses 4 and 6, they are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire and so on and so forth. We looked last week at how those metaphors illustrated this problem of unfaithfulness and this week we're moving on to the other three. We're wanting to, to understand what Hosea is saying. We want to appreciate why it is that he's used these metaphors. But also, as I said last week, we, we don't simply want to understand the passage. Hopefully we will. But we also want to hold a passage up like a mirror before ourselves. We want to look at ourselves in the mirror of these metaphors and to ask Is there anything of this in me? Anything of this in me? So how else does Israel's unfaithfulness look like? And first of all, Israel, or Ephraim, is likened to a half-baked cake. (laughs) This next metaphor covers verses 8 to 10 of chapter 7. And whereas the previous two metaphors, they were like Adam, uh, they were like a heated oven. Those metaphors concerned Israel's internal affairs, their priests and their political sort of plotting. This next section concern, uh, concerns their foreign policy. Israel, uh, sorry, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Hosea seems to be carrying on this theme of baking into this next picture of unfaithfulness. In verse 4, he mentioned the baker who lit the oven and kneaded the dough and so forth. And here he pictures Ephraim mixing himself with an ingredient uh, not in the recipe. A foreign ingredient that shouldn't be brought into the bowl, as it were. So what's going on? Well, as we saw last time, uh, Israel experienced this series of assassinations. We saw that in 2 Kings 15. And that whole chapter is summarized for us here in chapter 7, verse 7. They devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Within that series of assassinations, uh, Hoshe uh, assassinated Pekah and became king. You read of that in 2 Kings 17, verse 3, you read there. Sorry, no, you read of that in 2 Kings 15. But in 2 Kings 17, verse 3, you read there of how the king of Assyria came in against Hoshea, And he took control of the land. He forced Hoshea to pay a heavy tribute to him. And to do that, King Hoshea would have forced the people of the land to contribute to this annual tribute. It would have been a heavy tribute, and as they contributed to this amount of money that they would send off to the king of Assyria, the country's resources would have been drained. And you see that in verse 9. They appear oblivious to what's going on. The life is draining out of them. And they seem incapable of understanding, why is this happening to us? Why are we getting weaker? Why do we have less and less and less? But then Hosea makes a secret deal with Egypt and stops paying the tribute to Assyria Assyria then returns and launches a fresh attack on Hoshea and Israel, and after a three-year siege on Samaria, Hoshea is eventually defeated, and northern Israel is carried away into exile. And if you have time, if you read the rest of 2 Kings 17, you'll see uh, the writer there explain why all of this happens. It's a, a bit of a summary as to the history of Israel, northern Israel, and why they were carried off into exile. It begins in verse 7. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, and so on and so forth. You see, Israel knew they were in trouble. All the graphs showed it. The commentators agreed on it. Everyone knew that things were not going great for the country. Harvests were failing, society was rife with knife crime, as it were, thieves and murderers roamed about the place, and foreign nations threatened them with terrorism and invasion. Let that sink in. But instead of returning to the Lord, verse 10, neither returning to the Lord nor seeking the Lord, what did Israel do? She mixed herself, she kneaded herself in with the leaven of pagan nations. They became more and more corrupt, as 2 Kings 17 describes, even though God sent them prophets, like prophet after prophet, like Hosea. God, in His love, in His mercy, in His longing that they would return to Him, He sent them prophets to warn them but still they abandoned him. God's people abandoned their God and his word, and instead they followed the customs and the rituals of the people around them. They exchanged the glory of the living God of a loving husband to worship a lifeless idol, a useless idol of the pagan people around them. And Hosea describes Israel in that state as like a half baked cake. Well done on one side, but still raw and soggy on the other. Yes, still the covenant people of God, that's one side baked, but on the other side, totally uncooked, pagan and rotten, as it were, totally inedible useless, neither totally baked nor totally unbaked. They were so mixed with the world, they were neither bread nor holy dough. We might have called it a Laodicean loaf, as it were, as you read in Revelation 3.15. The Lord Jesus Christ describes the church there in Laodicea. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. That's what the Lord is about to do with Israel in spitting them out of the promised land and into exile in Assyria. They're a half-baked cake. A Laodicean loaf. You see, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations of the world. She was meant to be to the glory of God. But she had become so compromised, she had become so mixed with the world, to bring in another metaphor, she had lost her saltiness as Jesus describes in Luke 14, 34. And if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored, he says? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Israel was weak, was vulnerable, and instead of returning to the Lord, and putting him first, and seeking his will, and obeying him, and being loyal to him, and depending upon him, they went the way the world goes, and followed the world. I think this is where we can learn something from Israel. For there is a view that, certainly in the wider, the more general church, that if we only become more like the world... If we become more mixed with the world, then we'll become more effective in our evangelism. Strangers and outsiders will be more attracted to us, and it'll be good for us. It'll strengthen us. It'll increase our numbers. It'll increase our finances. It'll increase all these sorts of things that we would make, make us look strong and confident. When actually, it's actually the opposite of that. It's our biblical distinctiveness that will attract people, even, yes, it will, if it will repel some. But it's our distinctiveness that will attract God's people to us. I'm not talking about being weirdly distinctive. I'll leave that to your imagination as to what that looks like. Maybe you've seen that before, where a church looks weirdly distinctive. But truly, biblically distinctive in that we are being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are being faithful to being a people of truth and grace, faithful in pursuing morality, faithful in pursuing purity in our lives, faithful in conveying a truly Christ-like love towards one another. Just being biblically faithful and therefore biblically distinctive and different in the world around us i think every church especially so in this age of where there is a general decline in church attendance where we hear of every now and again a closure of another building And therefore, there is the appeal to compromise for the sake of acceptance. Every church needs to remember, needs to reflect on what the Lord Jesus said in Luke 6.26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Even a small church... And therefore a seemingly vulnerable and weak church with not much resources to it, maybe not much money to it, but a sort of Smyrna church, like Smyrna, Revelation 2. A poor church, and yet Jesus says, yet you are rich. If it's a faithful church in its commission... To be a light to the world around them, to be faithful to the gospel calling, to, be, uh, to make disciples, then God will use them, even in their smallness, but God will use them to further His kingdom. Tim Chester writes this, the hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus. We adapt so that the gospel can be seen and heard but we refuse to compromise so that it is the gospel that is heard and not some poor echo of the culture. But what else does unfaithfulness look like? Well, secondly, Israel is described as like a, a dove in verses 11 to 13. And again, this carries on what we've just been looking at, Israel's foreign policy of calling to Egypt, of going to Assyria. In other words, they were being extremely silly. They were being naive in thinking that by fluttering from one superpower to the other, any real good would come from it. One heavily paraphrased version of the Bible says this Ephraim is bird brained, mindless, clueless, first chirping after Egypt then fluttering after Assyria. Why was she doing this? Well, as I said, because she was in trouble. Her economy was weakening, her society was immoral and broken. There was violence, there was adultery throughout it. Surrounding nations were threatening or they were actually invading her land. So these were her symptoms. But all she looked at were her symptoms. She was refusing to look or ignoring her core problems. And when we look at verses 13 onwards, we see those core problems and we see how personal they are to the Lord. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Verse 14, they rebel against me. Verse 15, they devise evil against me. Do you see that repetition? It's not just that they've strayed. It's not just that they've rebelled. It's not just that they're liars, but against God, their loving husband. You see, we have here this insight again to the heart of our God and how His beloved, His covenant people, His bride have done these things to Him. It's not just if you imagine a husband and wife and one of them commits adultery. It's not just a matter of them committing adultery. But you've committed adultery against me, says the other one. You've grieved me. Friends, we have seen this before, haven't we, in Hosea? And maybe we just need to highlight it again tonight. Sin is always personal. It's always noticed. It's always felt by God. But again, this shows us something of who our God is, of His holiness and that He hates sin, of His purity and how He is deeply offended by our sin of his tenderness, how our sin grieves him. It it deeply saddens our God when his chosen, beloved, saved children behave as though they weren't his, as though they know nothing of him. For Israel, rather than coming back to God for help, she went either west or east, but she flew to her pagan nations her pagan neighbors. And God says in verse 12, whichever way you go, you silly dove, I'm going to catch you like in a net. I will stop you. I will bring you down and I will discipline you. And so again, wanting to apply this to ourselves, what is the principle behind this? Well, I think it's looking for a solution to a spiritual problem by only focusing on the symptoms, focusing on how to alleviate them rather than humbling oneself and seeking the person of God for grace and help. And I suspect this will be a fairly common thing around this time of year when you start the new year hoping to change this or that about you. You're going to try this or that, hoping that you'll become a better version of yourself. And so, like a silly dove, you flutter from one thing to another. Maybe it'll be a new job this year for someone, or a a new partner, a, a new church, dare I say. But looking for a a new experience of God, looking for a a sense of fulfillment in this Christian life that you live or looking for something that will really change me, but never simply being still before God and asking Him, even allowing Him to reveal to you what you really need. Allowing yourself To be vulnerable before God, allowing Him to say, this is what's really missing in your life, David. It's actually quite a scary thing to do that. When you allow God to probe your heart and say, as we've mentioned before, Lord, search me, search my heart perform that sort of MRI scan on me and show in me what I have hidden and pressed down for so many years, months, maybe years even, of my life. I've been trying this and that, but nothing seems to satisfy me. Lord, will you show me the idols of my heart it's quite scary to do that because he may well do it and he may well say this is the idol i want you to give up and how easy is it to give up an idol it's really hard how is it to e- how difficult is it to let go of something which has become, as it were, your comfort blanket. I mean, we knew that with our kids, don't we? That's a nightmare trying to get a comfort blanket off a child. How difficult is it for God to say, let me take that from you so that you could learn to lean on me more dearly and actually experience me rather than this thing you're following, your doing, which has failed you all this time because you haven't allowed me to deal with the core issue, the core problem in your life. Tim Chester again writes, we never arrive at a place of rest because we never seek rest in the right place. And again, maybe at the beginning of this new year, maybe someone needs to lo- just allow that thought to sink in and begin to be honest with the Lord, to set aside all the stuff that they've started in 2024 and, and simply be still in the presence of God and allow Him, give Him the time and the space to counsel you, to speak into your life, and to help you. Well thirdly, and finally, what else does unfaithfulness look like? We have looked at like a morning cloud and dew that goes away so quickly, so early, like Adam, like a heated oven, like a half to bake, a cake, like a silly dove. And now finally verse 16 like a treacherous bow. In other words, a faulty bow. A bow that doesn't shoot arrows straight. Or maybe when you pick it up and you need it to do what it's meant to do, but instead, when you've actually operated, you know, it snaps in half, or it goes, and the piece of string, whatever it's called, the twine, I don't know, it snaps. It's a a faulty, it lets you down. It doesn't do what it was meant to do. Uh, Here, Israel, Israel was repeatedly missing the target. They do appear to be shooting. They are shooting arrows of a sort. Verses 14 to 16 do talk about them crying out to God. They do talk about them returning to God, but not from the heart. And not for the right reasons. They, They don't appear to want God because He is God. They only want God because of what he can give them or what he can do for them. And there they are, it's such a vivid picture, wailing away on their beds. They're even gashing themselves like the pagans do. That's what Elijah saw in 1 Kings 18. But it's not for remorse. It's not for the sake of repentance. It's because they don't have their grain or wine. It's like one commentator describes, never mind thy kingdom come, where's our daily bread? That's all they wanted of God. That's all they saw he was needed for, simply providing for their needs, simply sorting out their problems, but but never ever getting their love, never ever getting their obedience, never ever getting their faithfulness. It's something very similar to what the Lord Jesus faced in John 6. The day before this, he had fed the 5,000 just from those few loaves and fish, and they were satisfied. Everybody enjoyed themselves that day when Jesus fed them, but the next day they come looking for him again, and Jesus knows why they have turned up. John 6, verse 26, this is from the New Living Translation, I tell you the truth. You want me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. These were people who had pursued Jesus. They'd even crossed the lake in their boats or gone round the lake as well, but not because they wanted him. They simply wanted another meal. They weren't fussed about knowing Jesus, the the bread of life, who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. They They were too shallow to see that. Their needs for Jesus was too temporal to want that. All they wanted Jesus for was to sort out their problem. Friends, every time we approach God in prayer and see Him as merely a provider for our needs or merely a solver of our problems, and I say this ever so carefully, even as just a savior for our sins but we miss the mark we're like this faulty bow we fall short short of where the lord wants us to aim for for his heart he wants us to know him he wants us to love Him. He wants us to delight in Him. I think of those words from Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Do you see that personal connection? It's not in religion. It's not in church attendance. It's in knowing a personal God in a personal way. How how then do we get to that place of real, personal, faithful communion with the Lord? Well, it's a work of God's grace. I can't give you a book or a leaflet or a tract. I can't send you on a course. I can't send you to a conference. I can't. But it's a work of God's grace where where he draws us through his word, like through a message tonight maybe. But he draws us through his word and by his spirit to want it. To be honest with him. To say, Lord, I, I... I believe in you, but I want to know you, like Paul wrote. I want to know you, Lord. I want to know you personally. I want to delight in you truly. I want to have a joy in my life because I'm filled with joy over knowing you. Friends, how many of us are like that, in all honesty? For that is how he wants us to be. Our loving husband wants us to delight in him as he delights in us. So friends, we, come, we must come to the person of Jesus, not simply to a historical fact of Jesus, even a theological statement about Jesus. Those are clearly needed for we must begin with first knowing who this Jesus is to then approach him by faith. But friends, we come in prayer to the person who loves us. Our ever faithful husband who longs for us to realize the measure of his love for us. Who has shown that love for us when he died on the cross for us. How more could he show that love? We'll come to in Ephesians, our husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved his church and gave his life for her. That's love. Christ did that for us. He has proven his love for us. He's shown his love for us. And now he wants us to know that love in a way that so affects us, that so changes us. We we would now live for him, with love for him, with delight in him. May God help us to that end then. Let's pray together. Lord, there's a sense of frustration in this because, Lord, in and of ourselves, we, we can't work this up in ourselves. We know how you want us to be. We know something of it. And there is, by God's grace, something within us that, that wants that, there is Lord thank you for that we pray Holy Spirit please Lord come and, and lead us to that place to that experience to that walk with our Savior whereby we walk with him and we love him we serve him we obey him and we delight in him. Even though we may be ill and poor, yet still we would love Jesus. Please change us, God, to that end. We pray. And give us grace, O oh, gracious Father.